Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I am the founder of Project MedTech, Dwayne Mancini. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of Project MedTech's series, MedTech Money. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loracella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is John Gillings from AxelMed. In this episode, Giovanni and John discuss his role and what they do at AxelMed. What is private equity? The difference between private equity and venture capital? what they look for in an investment, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with John Gillings. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future of what comes next with Project MedTech. John, thank you very much for being here today. This is MedTech Money, the podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And the reason why we're here is I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no magic or silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or even invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here is I'd like to extract insights and anecdotal stories from entrepreneurs, investment bankers, investors like yourself, so that we can help those who can benefit from the information and also for generations of both entrepreneurs and investors to come. And so what I imagine this audience being is a mixture of both experts and novices. However, what I wanted to do is extract your insights, your stories, your advice with what I imagine the first time founder or CEO that has no clue about what lies ahead of them in their journey of raising capital. And certainly that holistic picture of early stage capital versus late stage capital and and what the expectation of a company in med tech could look like as it evolves through the stages. And the best place I thought to start by learning something like this is with experienced professionals like yourself. So I'm very excited about this particular episode because going to the purpose of this podcast to give this holistic picture, once again, from early stage to very late stage, um, We've talked to angel groups before on the very, very early stage stuff. We've talked to traditional venture capitalists, both at the early and growth stages. This piece that you and I are going to be talking about today even takes it one step beyond growth. And, and we're going to get into that private equity understanding today. And what does private equity mean for the med tech industry? So very excited to actually demystify this very late stage aspect of business within med tech and certainly on the investor side. So before we get into all of that, I have three open-ended questions that I would love to ask you to start engaging the audience. And then we'll roll into who you are and what company you're representing, and then certainly learning about private equity. So my first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or am I missing anything important? Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Um, you know, p- particularly the people, but obviously you need the money to have the people. Um, you know, but if you if you look at a med tech startup, there are a lot of different components, right? Somebody can have an amazing idea, but if they can't uh, execute it in such a way that it actually gets to market then, uh, you know, it, it's not really going to help that much. And there, there are a lot of different skill sets and different people that are involved in making that happen. So, you know, it, they, they've got to identify, you know, a real need. Um, you know, they're going to have to design and execute trials, get approval, um, get reimbursement, um, have a good go-to-market strategy. And they're going to have to do all of this in a way uh, with a product design that that they can scale, uh, you know, and and make a profitable business in addition to to helping people and making patients' lives better. So, you know, it's kind of that idea of you know it's uh, you know it takes a village kind of thing, uh, and certainly that applies to med tech. So, 
um, you know, yeah, t- having smart people around you is is always going to be important. And then, you know, you you need the money to make all that stuff happen. So, um, you know, one of the reasons I like being an investor is, uh, you know, you have an opportunity to, uh, you know, to help put capital to work in ways that, you know, can help people's lives and, um, you know, hopefully help make society a better place. And you and I have talked numerous times before and, and learning about how you got into private equity and looking forward to getting those details of the story for everyone else to hear here shortly. However, if you knew what you know now about being in private equity, a med tech investor within private equity, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or would you be doing something else right now if you could? No, I, I actually really like what I do. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I had various ideas over time from, you know, when I was coming out of high school thinking I was going to be the next Jimi Hendrix to, uh, you know, I was pre-med for a while too. And, um, you know, but but I really like where I've ended up. I, I like that I can see a very sort of broad and diverse view of everything that's going on in healthcare technology, um, you know, and and try to help allocate capital to those ideas where, you know, you can sort of, uh, you know, at Excel Med and some of the other places I've worked, we focus on this idea of doing well by doing good. And, um, you know, if you can a- allocate capital to those ideas, um, that that is something that to me is very personally rewarding. You know, I might not be the person that invents the next life-changing or life-saving device, but if I can play a role in helping to identify those, get the funding they need, and help them uh, ultimately reach their goals and get to market and uh, help patients, then that's something that, in addition to being financially rewarding, can be very personally rewarding. So yeah, I it, it's been a long uh, a long path, and I didn't come through traditional channels, um, but yeah, I would absolutely do it again in a second. And then the name of your company, Axelmed. Long story, short story, creative story, straightforward story. What does the name of your company mean or signify? Yeah, it's it is fairly straightforward. So um, <laughs> we we invest in uh, in uh, medical technology and uh, healthcare technology more broadly. But um, you know, and the aim is to accelerate the development uh, of those companies and their growth. So uh, we aim to accelerate. Uh, so that's where the Excel comes from. Excel Med. And then now the man behind the voice, if you can let us know where you came from and what you alluded to in terms of that non-traditional path that you took to eventually become VP of Axel Med in private equity. Tell us who John Gillings is. Yeah. So, you know, as I, as I mentioned, uh, I actually started undergrad as a music major, um, you know, didn't last uh, that long. So some people on here will know Rick Weiss, who uh, was a concert cellist, uh, and then uh, you know has been a very successful uh, cell site analyst in uh, med tech. Uh, I didn't go that far, but you know I spent about a year as a music major, and uh, and then I moved into pre med, and uh, and then I moved into to accounting and finance, and um, you know I got. I got interested in the corporate world. I still maintained an interest in healthcare, but um, you know that wasn't part of the the early part of my career. Once I got out of school, I was a you know accounting and finance guy. I worked in auditing. I worked in uh, accounting and finance in house. Um, I worked with a small genera, generalist uh, investment banking firm. And then I went back to business school with the idea of moving into equity research. And it was really luck as much as anything else that I had the opportunity to move into to med tech. So I came out of uh, business school in 2008 when the world was a very interesting place, I think, uh, to put it lightly. Um, and I had the opportunity to join uh, the MedTech research team at Deutsche Bank. And, um, you know, and really, I- I've never looked back. I mean, it's, it's interesting. When I first went to business school, I wasn't dead set on healthcare. But when people ask me, you know, wh- why do you want to go back to business school? Why are you interested in equity research? Um, I said, you know, 
kind of what I said before, I, I might not be the guy that invents the next life-saving device, but you know, if I can help find that, that would be interesting. And, and I applied that to other industries as well, saying, you know, if I can allocate capital in such a way that it improves uh, society, improves life for people, that's a good thing. So yeah, when the opportunity to get into med tech came up, uh, I jumped in with both feet, never looked back. So you know, I spent some time uh, with Deutsche Bank, spent some time with a small firm out of the UK called Colin Stewart. Uh, when they got acquired, I went over to JMP Securities. I was there for probably about six years. And during the time that I was there, uh, we covered a uh, lot of companies, but one of them was a company called Cogentix, uh, which had been, uh, which was a portfolio company of the prior uh, ExcelMed fund. And so I met uh, our managing partner. I got to know a little bit about the strategy and just sort of started the conversation from there, uh, which ultimately led to, um, you know, uh, probably two or three years before I actually got hired, you know, went and had a coffee, had the discussion, said, you know, hey, I, I'm interested in what you guys do. Um, you know, let's stay in touch. And, and if the time's right, uh, maybe there'll be an opportunity to work together. Um, after uh, almost a little shy of 10 years in equity research, I had an opportunity to move to the corporate side. So I took that, uh, went down to Austin, Texas, worked with a small uh, med device company. And um, after uh, probably a little over a year or so, um, had the opportunity to join ExcelMed. Uh, they gave me a call and said, you know, we're raising another fund. And, uh, you know, here's... Uh, Here's the opportunity we talked about before, and uh, and the timing was right. So um, I, I enjoyed working on the corporate side. I've done it a couple times in my career, um, but I wanted to try something new. And uh, you know, like I said, I, I love what I do, and uh, I think it's I think it's a really great experience to have uh, spent time in different roles. So I wouldn't say, you know, some people are like, you know, you got to come out of a top university, go work at, you know, Goldman Sachs for two years and then go to private equity. Um, you know, that's certainly a path you can take. And I, I wouldn't say that's a bad path by any stretch uh, and it would get you here faster. But, you know, when I'm working with our portfolio companies, sometimes in almost a consulting type role, uh, where we're trying to help them accomplish some of the goals that, uh, you know, we have for them. It's great to have that experience of having been on the other side, having worked in a company and having known what it's like to try and sort of wrangle all the different teams together and, you know, get people excited about an initiative and get it done. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to it that you might not see from the outside if you've never had that experience. So, um, yeah, long, non-traditional path, um, but I don't regret any of it. And I think it all kind of pulled together to help me do the job I'm doing now better. So now we're here at you joining AxelMed. Tell us about AxelMed. What style do you guys invest in? I know you mentioned there was one fund, now there's fund two. Um, what do you typically invest in? How do you invest in? And if you can give context, it's what's the major difference between a private equity firm and what we know as traditional venture capital, right? So later mm -hmm. stage versus really late stage. Just talk about that and give it around the context of AxelMed and what you guys do. Yeah. So maybe I'll start off with the back half of that question and then move to the front half. That might make sense. So, um, you know, as a, as a company, moves from an idea to, you know, generating revenue and even cash, um, you know, they, they essentially go down a path that most of the time, uh, the vast majority of the time will reduce risk over time. And so in the very early stages, it might be more about the person than it is about anything else. Cause they, you know, they, they, they might be a smart person that you can say, you know, this, this person's going places, they're going to do what they set out to do. They have a great idea. They have the right connections. Um, you know, as you move down the path, you have more sort of evidence. Have, have they actually done what they said they're going to do? And so you reduce, reduce risk as you go uh, further down uh, in time. And, you know, you see that in a lot of different 
ways. So at first, uh, you know, people a lot of times get some funding just from friends and family, right? People that know them really, really well that say, yeah, you know what, I know this guy and I'm going to take uh, a bet on uh, this idea. They might not know anything about the company or the industry, uh, but they make a bet on the person because they know them. Um, you know, moving into venture capital, there's more rigor behind it. But in the very early stages, um, you know, it's still a lot about the person, the idea, uh, and there are other sources, um, you know, of income, whether it's uh, or, or investment, whether it's grants or, you know, some there are some conferences where you can just meet with high net worth individuals, uh, might not be, uh, you know, a friend or family, essentially, but it's still just a person that's investing. Uh, and then as you move down the path, and, and certainly what I've seen, uh, and, you know, this, I, I suspect um, you've seen it too, it appears to me that a lot of venture capital firms are moving sort of further down the path, at least in med tech. I can't speak to, uh, to biotech where you have, uh, you know, companies doing studies that are public, but, um, you know, it seems like a lot of the sort of sophisticated venture capital money is moving further down the path saying, you know, we, we'd like to see, you know, some studies, we'd like to see maybe some results. In some cases, um, you know, I spoke to uh, somebody at a sort of late-ish late stage VC fund a little while ago, uh, also in med tech, and he said, you know, we, we don't invest until we at least see early commercialization. You know, we, they like to see that, uh, you know, the pricing is acceptable to the market. So there are all these different sort of risk factors that get ticked off uh, as you move down the field. Um, and then, you know, traditional private equity, you're, you're generally investing in a company that has fairly significant revenue. Um, we don't necessarily need uh, positive EBITDA at ExcelMed, but many private equity funds do. Um, and, and it's a very different game because there's a lot of data to analyze. Um, you're not so much betting on a person. In fact, some in some cases, you'll look at it and say, this is a great asset, but we might need to, to make some changes. Uh, you know, we, we don't, uh, at ExcelMed, we don't aim to do that. That's not what we go in with the idea to do. We, we'd certainly prefer to have that continuity. Um, but sometimes there's an asset where you say, this is great, but, you know, there's, a, there's another person that could run this really well, maybe because they have the right connections or whatever the reason might be. Um, so all along that line, you're reducing risk and, and it also changes the, uh, the return that you would expect. So uh, very early on with friends and family, uh, people aren't sophisticated necessarily, something they might be, but they're typically not. And you're gonna come to some agreement on, you know, if I give you money, what am I gonna get? As you move into venture capital, um, you're going to be dealing with, you know, sophisticated people and you're going to want to have, uh, you know, you're probably going to want to have uh, some attorneys on your side and some other advisors and make sure that, um, you know, you want to deal with sophisticated people, but you want to make sure that you're treated fairly. Uh, and they might know, you know more than you do about things and they might see, oh, you know, we can do this or that in such a way that, that you might give away a little bit more than you think. So, um, so those those advisors become very important uh, as you move down the path. And, you know, I, I mean, at, at our level, we, you know, we, we would pretty much insist you know, that people that people have advisors because, you know, we want to do something where we're all rowing in the same direction. We're all going to win. Um, and those those partnerships, I think, become become an important part as well. But you know, back to sort of the main uh, question and, and how it uh, relates to uh, ExcelMed. We have two pieces uh, to our portfolio uh, in the current fund that we're investing out of. Um, we have, uh, it's a, you know, we hit our hard cap of 400 million and 30% of that is aimed at late stage growth, uh, growth investing. 70% of that is for uh, the private equity investing, which we're focused on the lower part of the market. Uh, we're, not, we're not out there trying to compete for these big uh, multi-billion dollar deals, um, but there's, you know, we believe an underserved portion of the market, um, sort of low mid-market uh, type companies where we can go in and uh, make a control investment. We typically wouldn't buy the whole company, but we can make a control investment 
um, be partners with uh, existing debt holders, management, um, you know, and, and try to find a path to inject uh, capital into a company, get it growing again, create value. So, uh, so we play in the later, uh, you know, sort of the later portions of that. Um, you know, the growth equity piece, even on that, we have a 10 million trailing 12 month sales uh, hurdle. So, uh, you know, companies are, are uh, you know, they're pretty substantial by that point. They've de-risked a lot. And uh, so we're not going to get the uh, the 10x returns that an early stage investor might, uh, but we do it with lower risk. So probably kind of a long winded answer, but that gives you kind of an overview of how I see things and where we fit. So there's a lot of questions coming out of that, but right what you just ended off on, when we hear angel groups talk about when they make an investment, they want 10x return, right? When, once there's a either an exit or an IPO of a company, right? But they're in early, early days. Mm -hmm. What you just mentioned, the risk is fairly mitigated, if not, well, not completely mitigated, but let's just call it very mitigated, mm -hmm. not certainly angel group style. Um, for context, are you looking to double your money? Is it 1.5 your money? Is it 3x your money? W what's the comparison yeah. when you think about that? No, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great question. So um, and, and it, it depends. I mean, so first off, I'd say we, we always want to make as much as we can, of course, <laughs> but, but realistically, uh, we, we do look at probably for the, the growth piece, I would say, um, you know, we probably look at three to five X over a three to five year horizon, uh, and reality comes along and sometimes it's going to be a little better. Sometimes it's going to be less, um, and it also depends on the market. Um, you know, we've seen over the last couple of years uh, a lot of good uh, growth investments. And so we tend to focus where we see things towards the upper end of that range, more in the four to five X uh, type level. Uh, but I would say overall, probably three to five X is, is what we look at from the, uh, the growth portion. Um, on the uh, on the control investment side, the more traditional private equity, uh, we tend to look at probably, I would say, um, maybe two and a half, three and a half, kind of in that range. So there's there's some overlap there, um, but you know it, it definitely depends on um, you know it depends you know, on one one hand on the number of opportunities. There tend to be more growth opportunities. And then on the other hand, on the level of risk, because with the control investment, uh, we're typically looking at a, a company that's sort of stalled out. You know, they've gotten out into the market, they've become uh, fairly successful. And, um, you know, just, just for context, we typically look at companies with about 20 to 70 million in sales on the control investment side. So they're, they're pretty substantial, they're relatively stable, but typically something's gone wrong. They've kind of stalled out. Maybe they've, uh, you know, they're, they're not in compliance with their debt covenants and, uh, you know, they, they need capital and sometimes some additional help, whether it's, you know, us working with them ourselves in, in almost a consulting capacity or through our connections um, or through bolt-on acquisitions, which we do fairly frequently in the uh, control investment strategy. So, so those are all things uh, that we would look at uh, there. And that's kind of the range, a little bit lower on the control side, a little bit higher on the growth side. Uh, and that kind of fits in with the, the risk profile of those two investment strategies. And for those listening in, to put some philosophy and summary on that, um, correct me if I'm wrong on the generalization, but the earlier the money goes in, the higher the expected multiple based on the risk factor, the later the money goes in, realistically more traction and, and milestones have been hit. So less risk, mm -hmm. less of a multiple. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly possible that you could have a, a company that uh, is very high risk, um, that's got a substantial amount of revenue, right? I mean, companies, uh, you know, with a hundred million in revenue go bankrupt sometimes. Uh, so, you know, so, so it, it depends more on the risk than the size, but your, your characterization is correct that typically as you move down that path, the risk is gone. Uh, and then the multiple somebody would expect is not as high. And so that tends to be more favorable 
to the founders because they can say, hey, you know, I, I can I can keep a little bit more of the pie and you're still excited to give me money. So you mentioned Excel's a bit unique in the sense where there is a high growth venture capital piece to it, but also you you mentioned um, middle stage or the style of companies that you go after with 20 to 70 million in annual revenue. Um, mm-hmm. What was the terminology that you use where? Uh, I, I said lower middle market. Um, lower you know, middle I don't, I, that, that's not a hard and fast uh, thing, just sort of a description to, so people kind of know roughly what we, we do. Um, you know, sometimes when you say middle market, they're thinking, you know, uh, something, you know, with, with 500 million in sales. That, that's not what we mean by middle market. <laughs> okay. So low to middle market, now that we understand what you're talking about. So you have this two-prong approach where it's traditional PE, private equity, and then traditional VC, albeit growth stage capital. Um, on the continuum then, because you have this blend of both very late stage growth venture capital, and then let's call it earlier stage private equity, because it's that lower to middle market, like you mentioned, right? You're not competing against the billion dollar deals. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we put you on this straight line, this continuum, where if angel groups are, or let's just even start with family and friends are the most extreme, and then you go angel groups, and then the various components of venture capital, all the way through growth capital, um, you're sitting right at that growth stage capital where there's money revenue generation and probably later stage growth capital, right? Because sometimes VCs who call themselves grow capital, they might invest to then spawn the commercial plan. Like they just got regulatory clearance or approval. They haven't drummed up a dollar yet. The next step is commercial. Um, And that's where some of those VCs come in. Others have more of a mandate, like you mentioned, a 12 month trail of minimum, what was it? 10 million, something Mm -hmm. like that, 10 or 12 million. so then you come in, that's obviously a proven out commercial plan where there is revenue generation for some time. So you're coming in that later stage growth capacity. Mm-hmm. And then on that, we'll call it earlier stage private equity. So that's where you sit. And then there's companies in private equity that are further down the spectrum from you, like you mentioned, competing against those billion dollar deals. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So there, you know, there are uh, private equity firms out there that, that do very large buyouts, um, you know, sometimes a very successful and profitable public companies. So, um, you know, obviously the risk profile there is very different and, um, you know, and it, it also depends on some other things. So I guess one, one other thing uh, that makes us a little bit different is we don't take on debt as a fund to, to leverage our returns. And some funds do. And that might be the case uh, with, you know, a, a fund that's making a very large investment in, uh, you know, a, sort of a stable, profitable company is they might take on some debt because they, they, the, the return they get might be decent, but not that exciting uh, in an unleveraged way. But if they put some debt on there, then they can leverage up their return and, and it looks a little bit better. So, so that's uh, something I guess that also uh, potentially makes us a little bit different is we, we don't do that. We tend to sort of win or lose uh, in line with our partners, you know, uh, you know management, uh, other investors that might invest alongside us or already be in the company and participate with us. Um, you know, we, we tend to, to go in in such a way that we all kind of uh, win or lose together. So then if, if you do hang in that very, very late growth stage venture capital aspect, and then let's still categorize it earlier stage private equity, if you hang in that area, that range, Mm-hmm. What's the the reason or the philosophy of splitting that two prong approach? Why not be a and I'll spoil it that, that that press release that came out in March. You guys landed fund two of four hundred million, right? So mm-hmm. why not dedicate the four hundred million like some of these other four to five hundred million dollar VC funds who only focus on commercial and late stage capital or um, venture capital, and then or flip it over and do hundred percent PE? Like why that two prong approach? So that's, I mean, that's a good question. And it's something that we sometimes discuss internally. And there's, there's more than enough opportunity on the growth side, uh, you know, the, the late stage growth side for us to have a, a fund that's completely dedicated to that. Um, you know, with 
sort of the what what was done with fund one and uh, and what we've been replicating so far is a strategy where, uh, like I said, there's not really a lot of competition for these sort of, uh, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, you know, fixer upper opportunities in the lower end of the middle market, uh, in, you know, specifically in health tech. And so essentially we, we identified a, a need that we felt wasn't being uh, served very well. And so, you know, a lot of times when we're um, competing for a deal in, in that strategy, we're not competing with other funds. We might be competing with, uh, you know, a corporate investor that's saying, hey, I can plug this in, you know, to my sales force and, uh, you know, and maybe bring in some other products on top of it. And, uh, you know, and it might make sense and so, sort of build a, a business unit around that. Um, so, so there's not, there's not a lot of competition there. I think, you know, we bring a, a unique skill set, um, you know, founders, investors, consultants, investment bankers. So we have, we have a, a broad range of, of backgrounds and we can attack problems from a lot of different angles. Uh, you know, even myself, I've been in accounting, investment banking, uh, corporate finance, investor relations, equity research. Um, so we can sort of solve a lot of problems for these companies, whether it's on the operational side, whether it's, uh, you know, trying to figure out how, how do I, you know, now, now that I've fixed some problems, how do I best approach uh, the equity markets for an IPO? Um, you know, we can... Uh, help them with uh, the M&A process if they want to do some bolt-ons. So, so we can do a lot for them. Um, there's not a lot of competition. Um, and so that's, I would say, primarily why that's, that remains an attractive space for us. Um, but we definitely have more competition for deals on the growth equity side. Uh, there, are, there are more deals, but there are also more funds. So you know, it remains to be seen in the future whether we'll say, you know what, uh, maybe we'll bring on a few more people because we're still we're still a fairly small team. Maybe we'll bring on more people and, uh, you know, and split the two strategies out into two funds. That's you know, something we may do in the future. We'll see. But um, really, that's that's the idea was, uh, you know, we started out uh, with fund one sort of serving this unmet need. We saw so many great uh you know, late stage growth investment opportunities that we thought, hey, you know, let's for, for fund two, let's dedicate, uh, you know, part of it to that. And so far, it's, uh, you know, Neuropace uh, has, uh, has played out very well for us. Um, you know, we, uh, we hope to keep finding uh, opportunities like that. Uh, but yeah, moving forward, I think that it, it's a fair question to say, um, you know, maybe, maybe you have one dedicated to each strategy. And that, that might be the direction we go. So I'm asking this question for me. Maybe some of the audience is also scratching their head. I just want to wrap my head around the, the difference in the definition. So you do have this two-pronged approach like we talked about. But mm -hmm. if the mandate is for late-stage growth capital to have, once again, minimally a year of $10 million in sales or more, mm -hmm. um, and that's the growth stage side of it. Yep. And then you have these companies who do annual revenue of 20 to $70 million, mm -hmm. And we call that private equity. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to wrap it in my head right now. What, what's the actual, what makes 20 to 70 million private equity and the other one makes venture capital late stage growth? What's yeah, so, so that's a, that's a great question. And it's, it's not necessarily the, uh, the, the size of the, the revenue. So those are our cutoffs for our, our investment mandate with our LPs. We, we've sort of agreed like this is how we define these areas and this is what we're going to invest in. And then they can make their decisions on sort of their, uh, their, their own capital allocation. Um, but so, um, yeah, it's less about the, the revenue cutoffs than it is about the um, sort of the nature of the businesses and where they are. So you could, you could look at some companies that might be, you know, doing 70 or 80 million in sales and they're growing like a rocket ship and they're a unicorn. Now, that, that's not part of our private equity strategy, you know, not, not by a long stretch. You know, typically the companies that we go after on the private equity side, and, and really the 20 million is just because we want to have sort of a, a platform with enough, uh, 
that, that's solid enough and has enough there that we have a, a good place to start to build on. Uh, and, and it's pretty common for us to look for add-on opportunities. So, you know, we might look at, uh, you know, Tier Lab, for example, um, you know, they had a sales force, we're building that out. Um, you know, we're going to be keeping an eye out for other products that would fit with a sales force that's calling on uh, primarily ophthalmologists. And, uh, you know, to the extent we can plug something else in there, we're leveraging that investment in uh, sales and marketing uh, because they're already going to be in those offices. So, uh, so yeah, so it's really more about, um, you know, on the private equity side, they're you know, like I, like I said, kind of fixer uppers. They're companies that have kind of typically stalled out. Uh, they might be EBITDA positive. They might not be. Uh, we don't want to invest in a situation where we're going to burn through all of our money in 12 months. But we'll look at companies that are still negative EBITDA that are, you know, kind of struggling. They've got hung up and stalled out somewhere. And uh, we say, you know what, we, we think we can see a, a path forward for these guys. Um, you know, a, a good example of that, just a, just a quick anecdote, um, is uh, a company called Keystone Dental from Fund One. Um, you know, they were sort of a, you know, probably you'd qualify them as a, a failed investment for Warburg. Uh, they weren't really, you know, they, they were decent size, sort of a platform, but they weren't really doing much. Their margins weren't great. They weren't growing. Um and, you know, through some changes, both with add-ons and, um, you know, investment in sales and marketing, uh, in that case, we brought in a new CEO, um, you know, we've been able to ramp up growth organically, we were able to do uh, an acquisition that has dramatically changed uh, their gross margins and brought in some new products, and we're looking at another acquisition that uh, could potentially uh, significantly uh, increase their sales growth. So, so that's kind of, I guess, an example on the private equity side. And then on the growth side, we're looking for things that, you know, they're, they might need money, but they kind of know what they're doing. They're on a good trajectory. Um, you know, they just uh, need sort of funding to take that next step. And, and typically we, we look at, at those later companies where hopefully we can be the last ones in before liquidity event, whether it's an IPO uh, or, or an acquisition. You kind of plan for the IPO and keep your fingers crossed for the acquisition because you, you can't make somebody buy your company. So that was a big aha learning lesson for me now, um, that delineation. So it's not necessarily about the revenue generation per year. It's really more about the strategy, right? Like you mentioned, if there's a unicorn out there who's just killing it and they're growing and they're growing and they're growing and there's nothing wrong with them, they're, they're a unicorn for a reason, um, and they need to raise more capital simply to continuously expand their growth. It doesn't matter if they have 100 million in revenue, a billion in revenue, 10 million in revenue, whatever it may be, that's growth stage capital. Mm -hmm. On the private equity side, it's really more involving strategy, meaning they could have stalled out. It is a turnaround. Um, they could be part of a roll-up. They, they're, they need to be combined with a few other companies, well, like a roll-up, like I just mentioned, but it's it's more about the strategy which PE takes over, albeit later stages, like we talked about, rather than the number of cutoffs. Is that fair to say and summarize? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. And I mean, even looking back to my time as a, you know, sell-side research analyst covering publicly traded companies, you know, you still have, even on the, the public equity side, this sort of range of investment strategies, right, where, uh, you know, you've got growth investors that'll, you know, you're growing well, they'll they'll throw money at you, even if your valuation is sky high. And then you've got people that are you know more value investors, and they look for those companies that you know maybe they're public, but they still have kind of taken a beating, and there's a reason why. Um, so yeah, it's it really is as you say the 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 strategy more than uh, the absolute revenue. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that. That's that's a good point of clarity for me. Um, another point of clarity on that strategy, does it matter if the companies are public or private? I mean, can you find a company out there who's still privately held and has 30 million in revenue a year and that's a PE deal, private equity deal? Um, or does it have to be public? I mean, do you buy both public and private companies? How does that work? Yeah, so so that's actually a really great question. And, and that's, um, it also is, is different with the different strategies. So um, 
on the private equity side, we could do both uh, private companies and public companies because we're making a control investment. On the growth equity side, we typically only look at, uh, well, I shouldn't say typically, we, we always only look at uh, companies that are private. Uh, and the reason being, if, if you're making a growth investment in a public company, you're essentially competing with hedge funds. And that's, that's really not our strategy. And that kind of comes back to our relationship with our limited partners and what they invested in, right? They can go invest in a hedge fund if that's what they want to do. And so we don't want to muddy the waters by sort of mixing those things up. Um, so, you know, we, we might hold, uh, you know, for example, we, we still hold shares in Neuropace. Um, you know, we're in the lockup right now uh, and that'll end fairly soon. But, um, you know, once that's done, we don't have a gun to our head to sell those shares, um, but it's not really our strategy. So we'll sort of look for the right opportunities uh, over time and, and we'll eventually move out of that holding. Um, you know, we also uh, have a control investment in a public company called Strata. Now, in that case, um, because we took control, it's part of the private equity strategy. Uh, the company had been a little bit challenged and, you know, we've been working on a number of initiatives there and that's still, still a story that's playing out over time. Um, but yeah, so on the control investment side, we'll look at both on the growth investment side, uh, limited to the private companies because we're trying to execute a specific strategy so that when, you know, we, we go out to, to raise money and talk to limited partners, we sort of say, you know, this is what we're doing and we have to stick with that so that they can uh, allocate their capital uh, to the right sort of risk and reward that they want. So then if you only chase after privately held companies for the growth stage injections, and then it could be both public or private for the private equity ones. Mm -hmm. If we hang on the private equity piece of having one of those options, is one more difficult than the next? Is it more difficult to be a private or invest private equity within a publicly held company versus uh, private? Is there anything different there? Yeah, for, for sure. So um, I mean, the, the most uh, blatant and, and obvious uh, difference is that you're trying to fix something up in with public scrutiny, right? I mean, every quarter you've got a call and, uh, you know, so, sometimes um, I guess one of the things that I like about private equity is that you take a longer term view um, the public equity markets on average have a very short-term view. You know, they're always looking to the next quarter, the next press release. Uh, stocks move sometimes very quickly. Uh, sometimes that's warranted. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just a weird knee-jerk reaction to some news that people don't really understand. Um, so, you know, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I guess, one of the big pieces is, uh, yeah, it's it's just it's very it's very different, and it's it makes a difference if you're trying to take a long-term strategy where you say I'm going to create value, I have a plan, but it's going to take me three, four, five years to do it, and there are going to be some bumps along the way, and I know that, and and I and I understand it. Um, yeah, public equity can get uh, whipsawed around quite a lot <laughs> through that process. So, <laughs> yeah. So then going back to Excel Med. And that second fund that you guys recently closed on that 400 million, just to give context on, and I asked this question to venture capitalists, and I'm not sure if it's the same question for private equity, uh, minimum ticket size, right? So I don't know if that's the same question that you say when private equity is buying a controlling stake in a company or not, but- No, that's a, yeah, it's a fair question for sure. So um, yeah, so on the, on the private equity side, uh, we probably, Minimum would probably be about 20 million. Uh, I don't think we've ever done less than 20. 25 is probably pretty average for the first investment. Uh, we generally go into a control investment situation with the idea that we're going to make multiple investments over time. So that could easily get to you know, 50, 60, 70, even 80 million over the life of an investment. Um, but it would be pretty common for that first check to be maybe in the 20 to 40 kind of range on the, the private equity side, uh, given our size and our sector of the market and what we're doing, which is fairly specialized. And like I said, 
you know, we're kind of meeting an unmet need, so you're not going to run into a ton of firms doing the same thing we do. Uh, and then uh, just for context on the growth equity side, it would probably be more like uh, 15 to 40 would probably be our normal uh, investment range, um, you know, some something in that range. And, and uh, you know, something that we've done in some cases and, and we'll do again in the future is, you know, if we find a good growth investment opportunity and we're talking to management and they're saying, I don't want to take too much money too fast, um, you know, sometimes we'll tranche those investments. So we'll say, okay, you know, how about we set this up in such a way that we'll give you, you know, 15 or 20 now, and we'll do another 15 or 20 later, assuming, you know, that you need it. Uh, because sometimes they come out with these plans and they say, you know, look, uh, all I need is, you know, 15 to 20, and I'm going to be that rocket ship and, and I'm not going to need another round. I'm going to go public. I'm going to do this or that. Um, so that we, we try to, to do that in such a way that it gives people that flexibility. Uh, but those are the, I, I guess, kind of ranges to think about uh, in terms of each strategy. So then with a $400 million fund, like you guys have now in fund two, what is the expectations of how many companies can you stuff into that 400 million? I mean, I'm sure maybe there's reserves that you're holding on, but like, what's the expectation in fund two? Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a good question. We'll probably do, you know, on the order of 12, um, you know, and some of those will be, you know, the, the, the growth stage ones where we make that first check and then, uh, you know, they, they take off and they don't need any more, um, you know, and some of them will be bigger ones where we do the control uh, investment uh, and we put in additional capital and, uh, you know, and we can even flex higher than that because we can go to our LPs and say, you know, we have this opportunity, would you like to co-invest with us? And, um, you know, most of the, the large uh, LPs that we have um, would be interested in that. And that's something that they a lot of times actually ask is, you know, is that something that you do? Is that something you'll bring to us over the course of the fund? And so they're interested in those opportunities. Um, yeah, so it can it can it can vary a lot. I would say, yeah, we're probably going to target roughly, you know, three companies a year over a period of about four years, and that'll probably be about twelve, um, with a mix of uh, you know the the growth and the private equity, and and there will be uh, on average smaller check sizes for the growth. Does Excel Med with that split? late stage growth equity versus PE style or theory and philosophy of investing. Do you guys act exactly like every other traditional VC where you have the 10 year horizon and LPs that would invest in Excel med would be the same ones that invest in a traditional VC, meaning, you know, is it pension funds, is it universities, endowments, um, high net worth individual, all, is it almost the same on the back end? Um, so in terms of our LPs, you're going to have a lot of the same people on the back end, but that's probably going to be more driven by the fact that they've got different strategies that they're investing in. So, so they're they're going to put part of their money to work in venture capital, and they're going to put part of their money to work in us. And it's it's going to be with a little bit different idea. Part of that is because we have the two pronged strategy, um, but even on the growth side we tend to look for opportunities where it's going to be uh, quicker to get to a return than that 10 year horizon. Um, you know, even in the late stage uh, growth equity side of the fund, we're probably still looking at, at three to five years. Um, and, and that goes back to, you know, the 10 million trailing 12 months sales. It comes back to the idea that we, we really look for those opportunities where we're pretty confident we can be, the last money in before a liquidity event, um, you know, and, and having had experience like many of our team members do in banking and equity research in the public capital markets, we tend to know what do investors need to see for uh, an IPO to be set up well. And so we're pretty good, I think, at, at sort of vetting those opportunities and uh, finding the ones where we think within that window, we can get them where they need to be and, uh, and help them be successful in that. So out of the various styles of investors that I've talked to about timing and, and due diligence process from the time that an investor meets a potential investment to the time that the money hits the bank, 
with angels, I've heard it's anywhere between two to three months. Sometimes it could be really quick and it'd be a few weeks, depending on how intimate the relationship is, or if it's a high net worth individual versus angel group. Um, traditional venture capitalists, two to three months, sometimes depending on due diligence and corporate investors, family office, family offices, I've learned that they have a very quick turnaround that they have just a smaller committee and really no mm -hmm. time horizon to answer to. So they could be pretty quick if they need to corporate investors, they could take their time. I mean, I've heard up to six months from the time that they meet. So mm -hmm. with private equity, like yourself, when Excel Med meets for the first time, that investment opportunity, and yes, then there's more talking going on and then we get into due diligence and then serious discussions and term sheets and all that's when the lawyers and the, the financial work starts flying around from the time that you meet a, an investment opportunity to the time that your money hits their bank account so that they can start putting it to work. What does private equity look like? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and, and it's probably going to be a little bit different for us because we are so focused in, in sort of a specific niche where there aren't a lot of people. We spend a lot of time um, meeting companies and meeting executives that that are not um, probably the right fit for our strategy right now. And we'll be straightforward with that. Look, I, I don't want to waste anybody's time. So I'll, you know, I'll send them an email. We, we've got something written up that this is exactly what we do. And I'll send it to them and be like, look, this is what we do. If you want to chat, um, we can chat. So a lot of times we'll actually meet people for the first time, you know, years before we invest in them um, because we, we put a lot of work into understanding, you know, knowing people in the industry, understanding the trends, that sort of thing. Um, in terms of when we get serious about discussing, which I think is probably more appropriate to the, the timeline that you're, you're talking about, um, when we get sort of into the initial serious discussions and moving through that first phase, getting to the term sheet, doing due diligence, that's probably pretty comparable, I would say, you know, in that two to three month kind of window. Um, but in, in most cases, we've, we've had a lot of preliminary discussions. Sometimes we've gone into diligence in the past and, you know, we've kind of reached a point where we've said, well, you know, we found X, Y, and Z. And in order to address those, we think we need to do this. And they'll say, well, we're not sure we want to do that right now. Um, you know, We'll, we'll stay friends and go our separate ways. And, um, you know, later on, maybe things have changed. Maybe they've fixed those problems or, you know, maybe they've encountered something else and they say, you know what, um, you know, we, we think you guys could help us with this. So, yeah, so it's, it's a long, there, there's a lot that goes in before you get into that really sort of serious focused process. But once we get there, it's probably in that two to three month range, like, like you were saying for uh, a lot of the VCs. Okay. So fairly similar, even like yeah. when you get at that term sheet level, then it's two to three months on the back end. Yeah. Um, and then I, I've, I've talked about this with VCs before, where if they started off with a $50 million fund and they did well, and then they went and raised a second fund. And while everything hasn't proven out where everything was exited or went public, um, they went to go raise a second fund and it went from 50 million on the first one to 75 or a hundred on the second one. And if they continue to do well, because investors are almost like startups within themselves, right? I mean, if they mm -hmm. hit traction, if they do well, if they are making good investments, when they go out and raise another fund, people want to get in mm -hmm. um, based on the hope that they're going to do continuously as well as they did previously. So these size of funds continuously get larger. Um, you have two funds at Excel Med, the second mm -hmm. one being 400 million. Yeah. Was the first one smaller? And then if it was, was it the same style of situation? Was it a great first fund that led to a larger second fund? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's really a good way to think about it. So, you know, it, it really, um, I mean, the history really goes back uh, a number of years. So our founding uh, partner, Uri Geiger, uh, really started by the first iteration of Excel Med, probably 2009-ish, 2009-2010. And that was really essentially a, a family office for Maury Arkin, who's uh, a very wealthy uh, entrepreneur in Israel and friends with, uh, with Uri. Um, you know, they progressed from that to a venture capital fund that was focused primarily on uh, investments in 
Israel, where, uh, you know, several members of our team uh, come from. They're very well connected. Um, and then, you know, Uri uh, decided to start Fund One in the U.S. as a smaller private equity fund because he'd sort of seen this, uh, you know, this underserved portion of the, the lower end of the middle market. And that was a $130 million fund. Now, the amount of capital that's been invested in that fund has, has ended up being higher than that because a lot of the LPs brought significant co-investment into some of those uh, opportunities. So, so the money invested and deployed is, is significantly higher than the 130, but it was a $130 million fund. And then this one that we just closed was targeted at 300. And, uh, you know, we had 400 as a hard cap and we hit that hard cap, uh, you know, and had to stop taking money. Um, but, but the uh, fund, fund one did, did very well. It's 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 done very well. I, I think uh, I want to say last time I looked at Prequin, um, we were probably we're definitely in the top five, and I think we were number three um, top performing fund uh, in our vintage and size range uh, in all strategies. So uh, yeah, it, it it definitely helps if you do well, then people want to give you money. You mentioned Israel and then also some historical experience with some of your other partners and affiliates. Um, is Excel Med geographic agnostic? Is PE, for example, once again, going to the very early stage stuff, typically speaking, angel groups, you often find that money doesn't leave their borders and sometimes it doesn't leave their cities. It's very, very close to home. As, you, as I've learned and, and talked to more investors, the money starts having the potential to get further and further away from the wallet. Um, does private equity truly look Global. I mean, does Excel Med look global, or is there a focal point? There's so that, that's also a good question, and there's there's some of that, and and I would expect that over time that could increase. So with the current fund, um, we are primarily focused on the U.S. We have essentially uh, we can do we can deploy ten percent of the fund outside the U.S. Um, it's, it's not a focus of our mandate, but basically because we, we do have connections. I mean, I did business school in London, so like I, I know a lot of people in Europe as well. Um, and we have international, uh, a lot of international experience on our team, um, good connections to Israel. So, so we definitely, you know, we have the connections, we have, uh, the ability to do that, uh, right now it's at 10%. And I suspect that in the next fund, depending on, you know, how deployment of that 10% goes, maybe that, uh, percentage will increase, but we'll, you know, we'll wait and see. So, so we have the understanding on the spectrum, um, with angel groups being the earliest, and then we have all the other stuff that we've talked about, venture capital, growth stage capital, and then private equity. So we all know, and for the novices out there who might not know, is there anything on that spectrum that comes after PE or is that just simply the end of the road and PE just gets from smaller PE to larger private equity? So that, that is, uh, that's also a good question. I mean, I guess, I guess what you could say potentially would come after that might be just, you know, the, the public markets. Um, the, the, the public markets encompass a, a massive range, right? I mean, you have, you know, small biotech companies that are running trials and don't have any sales uh, and you have massive companies too. Um, but I think, you know, if you're, if you're a very large private equity investor, um, you know, you're doing the massive deals, uh, your exit is most likely going to be either, uh, you know, either going back to the public markets or an acquisition by another very large publicly traded company. So, um, you know, it, it's not that that's all <laughs> public markets are by any stretch, but I, I would say that might be kind of the, uh, the end of the road uh, in terms of exits. So for those listening, angel groups, venture capital, private equity, and then obviously with exception, like John just mentioned, public markets would come after private equity. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. You've alluded to this, and I'm sensitive to time here. I just want to have more of a, a concise conclusion on this. Beyond capital, what does private equity offer to the companies that invest in? 
that's going to depend on the fund, but for us, um, you know, we have, we all have experience either, you know, entrepreneurs, bankers, consultants, accountants, equity research. Um, we do really dig in and do a lot of work, uh, with our companies and, and I, you know, we, we take those deadlines and those relationships very seriously. I mean, I, uh, earlier this week, I was up until 3 a.m. Um, to meet a deadline for one of our CFOs because I promised him something. So um, we, we put a lot of time and effort into those relationships and trying to make sure that we help set them up for success. Well, John Gillings, I, I can't thank you enough. I learned a tremendous amount on this particular episode about private equity and the difference between private equity and venture capital and how that specifically plays into med tech. So thank you for all your insights, for all the stories that you shared. And now I think we all know a little bit more about private equity and how it helps out the industry that we all play in within MedTech. So John Gillings, Vice President of Excel Med, thank you very much for your time. This is MedTech Money, Demystifying Raising Capital. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.